And it sounds superfluous sometimes when you talk about when there are these real uh, quote unquote problems in the world to be like a humanities person and just and <laughs> and just go on about how we need a different language. But it's funny because when the real things happen, the language changes and, and maybe the real things could happen in a healthier, more gradual way uh, if we used our imaginations and changed, <laughs> changed the language a little sooner, which is like McLuhan says the artist is supposed to be doing, what the artist is doing and what everybody else is catching up to all the time. Greetings, future fossils. I hope everyone listening to this is safe and sane and learning all kinds of wonderful things and getting long overdue projects completed. These are strange times, as I know you know. And as Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. So this feels like the right time to have and the right time to share this deep and rich and bizarre conversation I had with a trio of fine folks, two of whom I've had on the show before. We have Eric Davis, a doctor of religious studies, author of several amazing books we talk about frequently on the show, including Technosis and High Weirdness, host of Expanding Mind podcast, which is one of this show's major influences. We have Tony Blake, whose background is in physics and the history and philosophy of science, a student of John G. Bennett, who himself was, many of you may know, a student of G.I. Gurdjieff. Tony is the research director for the nonprofit organization Duversity and the author of a couple of fascinating books, including A Seminar on Time, The Supreme Art of Dialogue, and A Gymnasium of Beliefs in Higher Intelligence. And then we also have Mitch Mignano, who appeared uh, a couple times on this show, I think episodes 57 and 98. Yep, that's right. I just checked. Mitch used to be an editor at Reality Sandwich. He, for years, has been working on and off with uh, Synergia Ranch here in New Mexico and uh, for projects with Synergetic Press. He was a graduate student of William Irwin Thompson, who I had on the show in episodes 42 and 43, and is probably the most amazing and inspiring living historian, at least that I'm aware of. And Mitch and I met on a panel at Burning Man like 11 years ago and have worked on a bunch of esoteric musical projects and so on. So this is a conversation that we originally intended to have about something else, but it felt like it would be foolish to not try and weave the kind of themes that four guys like us would naturally explore without any prompting into a reflection on the hidden depths of current events, exploring the mythic and the mystical dimensions of life in a pandemic, non-human agency, the virus as a teacher, pan and panic, how solutionism isn't the solution, the danger of efficiency logic, a recommended media diet for proper contemplation of the darkness of nature, and so on. 
This is the kind of conversation that in academic circles might be considered too weird to live and too rare to die. So I want to take a moment to thank everybody who has been supporting Future Fossils on Patreon, including this week's latest subscribers, Emily Fordyce, Christian Holmes, and Camille Slufik. And everyone else whose continued support makes this show possible in the first place. We hosted our first open Zoom call to members of the Patreon community as well as the general public last week. And it was really warm and wonderful. Really interesting to get everybody's different perspectives on the situation and to hear how everyone is doing and making sense of things. And I'm going to start hosting these on a weekly basis for the next month, at least, while I have a little bit of extra bandwidth. If you'd like to join us for a remote hangout and meet some of the other Future Fossils peeps, then the information, the details for those calls is up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. It's a public post. Anyone is invited. While you're there, you might also be interested in downloading the Future Fossils coloring book, which... After years of hiding it behind a paywall, I decided, since everyone is stuck at home right now and possibly bored, although some of us are working harder than ever, I, I decided to make that free to everybody, and that's up for free on Patreon also. So plenty on offer there if you're an introvert or you're more interested in meeting up, linking up with people in a time of social isolation. As I believe I mentioned in last week's episode, I'm one of these perverse people that gets kind of exhilarated by potentially catastrophic moments like the moment that we're living through now and see it as an opportunity to rise to the occasion and serve my little corner of the world as best I can. So thanks everybody for giving me a reason. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eric Davis, Tony Blake, and Mitch Mignano as much as I enjoyed having it. Um, so here... The streets are dead-ish, but, you know, we've been going to the beach every day because you're encouraged to go outside at this moment and still exercise. So uh, I rode my bike by the beach yesterday, and there was actually, I would just say, a disturbingly large number of people in the sense that they were definitely not practicing physical distancing. A lot of people still seem somewhat cavalier about it, like they didn't get the message. But, you know, that's part, that's also what you're going to get with human beings. So it gets statistical. You're like, well, if most people are doing it until you actually have a mandated police enforced shutdown, you're going to have some loose. So it, it feels kind of eerily normal. You know, the, most of the stores are closed. There's a few that are boarded up, which is kind of weird to see boarded up stores on the Hate or the Mission. So... You know, that's where, that's where we're at right now. What's it like for you, Tony? Well, um, I'm in the, so to be the very vulnerable sector of the population. You know, I'm 80 years old. I've got diabetes, you see. So it's very sort of scary for me. And wanting to avoid uh, contact with other people is the primary thing. 
So I was staying at home with my wife, and we uh, still can go shopping, you know, for food and that sort of thing. Her children in Edinburgh and various places, and they're thinking about coming and kind of visiting me, but it's very dodgy if they do so. They're you know, half my age. Yeah, they shouldn't visit you, man. That's right. Yeah. If they do, they should wash their hands for 20 seconds first. Oh, we got that washing hands and what do you sing? Happy birthday or God saves the queen or something while you're washing your hands to get the right amount of time. It's the introduction to Star Trek is how our house is handling this. Star Trek. Yeah. Space. The final frontier. Oh, about it. For me, the, uh, well, one of the big factors for me is, uh, is writing to some friends and saying that the last you know, 10 years or so, and it's coming back to me that, you know, I was doing, I was uh, a child during the Second World War, but it does uh, have some impression of what it was like for adults living in that time and what they had to go through. And even though my town where I lived, Bristol, was, was bombed and so on, I wasn't directly involved in that. I just felt it as a child, the results of it, by streets disappearing and things not being able to get here. But I was worried about this, I mean, can we... And we've had this sort of period of peace in Europe after those terrible world wars. I thought, well, am I going to live in this lull, in this period where there's not kind of war around, you know, this kind of suffering of people in which everybody is shared. And so it was when this virus came in, so I thought, this is like it. And it's actually shock, you know, it was something affecting everybody and I produced death. And uh, so I've almost in a way got my... Well, it wasn't a kind of wish, but an answer to the question about living in a time when more or less everybody's being affected by the same thing, and it's physical, and it, it's concrete, and it's, it's scary, and you don't know what's going to happen, and so on. And it's in contrast to the kind of heedlessness and hedonism of the, the past generation. Of course, I can't resist learning about the White House and all the nonsense goes on there, you know, the rejection of science and all the rest of it, the insulation. The, you know, isolation of things and so on. But this is like me an impact saying, look, you're living on one bloody place. <laughs> it's a finite room. <laughs> you can't get away from this. You know? And anything happens in one place, it happens everywhere. To that point, I had uh, Tanya Harrison, who's a, a, a Mars geologist on the show recently. And the whole episode was about how she had just co-authored this book about the moon landing, interviewing people from all over the world who were a part of this thing and remembered it as not a victory of the United States, but a victory of the human species. And we were saying like, God, what is it going to take to get us back to that place where we feel like we're all experiencing an event together? And that like, that was like the high watermark of human solidarity. And in a weird way, this showed up as like, you called? You know, it's <laughs> recalled <laughs> indeed. You get that sense. There's something uh, coming out of us, a need. Uh, all the nice ideas about cooperation and appreciating other people and cultures and so on. Just, we're, we're remaining in the world of nice ideas. The climate crisis is not enough, right? You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what, it seems like it doesn't matter what happens. There's not enough of a discrete event. And, and so, uh, you know, people are ready to be germaphobes. So, uh, and shutting down the economy seemed to require people being 
scared shitless, literally buying all the toilet paper, <laughs> give them, give them reason to do that. And uh, it's, it's kind of it, it definitely a huge upside is getting everybody to think all at once about something. So uh, what are we, we're not recording yet, right? We're just chatting. I have it on recording, but we are just chatting and it's probably okay. a good time to, I, it's probably <laughs> just a good time to like touch in and decide what this is about. Yeah. Tony, you had some concrete stuff that you approached us with initially. Re- kindly remind, because I, I think you were talking about it with Eric when I signed on and I, I kind of missed most of that. <laughs> the uh, two things which I think are pertinent uh, I directly answer that. First, that uh, how for me this is a very good Jeffian in the way of saying you can't understand anything unless you involve, you say, your body. You, without this physical reality, there is nothing to understand. It's misunderstanding, in fact. And that's what's been happening. It's going to has to have something concrete in the body. But what I suggested before was much, much more philosophical and vague. That is to say, entering a realm of being able to or wanting to perception from a kind of egocentric, maybe just a kind of um, homocentric, I don't know what the, what the word would be, you know, mankind-centered, we see things in this sort of way because we are people of a certain kind of history and development as a certain species. And uh, we're actually beginning to touch on the, the, the in a totally different way from the past, but similar, that is to say, with other kinds of experiencing cells. And I was listing, you know, this rise of artificial intelligence and this different kind of contact with living organisms, which is happening. I just saw a program on television the other day about the intelligence of animals, and it was just totally extraordinary what's being uncovered about them. And then about the role of um, uh, creative imagination in, in, in literature and so on. In other words, the different kinds of examples of cells uh, and ways of perception which we're touching upon, which weren't around before. What we had before was like ideas like the spirit world, which we're in contact with, which we associate with traditional cultures. But we're finding, we're going to find our own form of that, mostly through technology and, and so on. And I remember at the back of this, the, this wonderful quote, I can't give you verbatim for Bertrand Russell, when he wrote to some lady and said, I'm, I will really have this passionate desire before I die to actually see things in something more than the human way. <laughs> Richard Russell so sounds better with a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a Brit, so that's, you know. <laughs> that was where my thought was going. And uh, we've had a conversations, I think, before about this, about this. Uh, this I thought it's really extraordinary what was happening, actually changing from a few hundred years in the West, at least, from this kind of really locked down idea, because it was not only in the human species, but it could be a certain kind of, you know, the Western world or a particular nation or something like that. That was dominating the whole planet, you know. And there was signs of this breaking up until the impossible could happen. You could actually see the world in a way which is not based on our species. Well, I'm for it. I definitely, um, you know, the latest episode of Weird Studies, they, they, they're talking about James Hillman's work on uh, dreams in the underworld. And they open the episode with a conversation they had about one of Phil Ford's dreams last summer, where he dreams of this, he enters this suburban kind of David Lynch style, empty dining room thing. And there's a, gi- there's a giant virus floating in the air. And then the virus spreads out and 
becomes everything and replaces everything like that uh, Ray Bradbury story where the little boy is, is sort of eaten by his disease and replaced by his disease and no one around him realizes it. And so the, the dream ended with the virus sort of being everything, you know, and that everything had been replaced by the, the mindedness of this thing. And I would be curious, although I'm, you know, I'm, I'm up for moving this any other way. But for me, part of this is that I remember in high school asking my biology teacher why a virus isn't considered alive. And it feels like, you know, if, if there's any sense in which we can talk about progress over the last thousand years in a way that doesn't just offend our contemporary sensibilities, it might be a movement of the recognition of life and mindedness into that which we considered inanimate. You know, that there's, there's a sense where like we're realizing that the virus is just one piece of this really like the if the parts of it are housed externally that's not a lot different from the way that we in our vulnerability in this moment historically have been shown to depend upon this intricate machinery of civilization that is external to what we normally think of as a human being you know and so there's a sort of almost like a sympathy for the devil that we have an opportunity to seize here I don't know. That's, that's, that's a strain that we're constantly strumming on this show. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's important to, to uh, important angle to take for uh, two couple reasons. One is if we are going to try to grapple with the situation at, at the very least as an opportunity to see differently, which may be good, not only to better future, but to even interact with the future. That's going to be even more different than we think it is now. So we have to start getting good at, shifting the view and and displacing uh, our normal perspective, but also in a more concrete political sense, which is that we can already see, you know, we're still in this first phase of sort of shock and, and, and desperation with a great deal of focus on the medical situation and the caregivers and testing and, and getting a handle on it uh, conceptually, like what's actually happening, da, 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 what are best practices But already you're seeing social control start to enter into the screen. You can start to get little blips and weird memes that seem a bit off, like Hollywood celebrities talking about federal shutdowns. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So already there's a kind of the the reactionary control society is is going, oh, yeah, this this is going to be really good for us. And it's clearly going to be great for, for totalitarian countries like India and blah, blah, blah. So one thing you can do is to not demonize the virus, not so much as just a creature or a sort of creature, but particularly in terms of like where it comes from. So we're seeing the right use the Chinese virus as a way of, of, of intensifying what is an increasingly dark struggle between China and the US at a point when you would think that maybe we could kind of come together around this folks, but clearly, and that's, there's some signs of that, but there's equal, if not more signs of the opposite. And so this idea of the virus is somehow being outside of possibility of legitimate possibility that it's somehow some kind of aberration or crack is it's absurd scientifically, but it also, that idea supports 
this kind of reactionary nationalist maneuvering when, if anything, when have we had a better chance to recognize a commonality? We're all in this together. We're all part of this anthropological expression thing. So I think part of the way to get to that unity is you kind of have to revise your sense of the virus as, you know, it's got its own... It's got its own thing to do as opposed to going, oh, well, if the Chinese didn't have wet markets and it's they're the ones who, da, da, you know, so that seems to be a really important way to kind of reframe or, or approach the idea of the virus. And one, one thing that I would say is that even if some people are, are wary and there's probably some good intellectual reasons for it. I mean, I, I would I would see I could see some of ascribing life in that sense or sentience to everything. Um, you know, this, this morning I listened to actually a pretty great recording from uh, one of the 17th Karmapas, because there's two 17th Karmapas, but one of them had a really excellent uh, blurb that I just tweeted about, a uh, half an hour talk. And at one point he was saying, you know, scientifically, we can't really tell our viruses sentient beings, because in Buddhism, you'd say, a f- you know, a flea is a sentient being, but a rock isn't a sentient being in, in traditional Buddhism. And we, you know, and a lot of us, even if we're we have panpsychist te- tendencies, you know, it gets a little rough. The dip, the difference between the worm and the stone, uh, and the virus is somewhere in between. But even if they're not alive, they are definitely agents. And agency, in some sense, is even more important a category than life or sentience, which tend to get too anthropomorphized or too sort of, you know, agency. We can all acknowledge, and machines have agency. So it's another way of saying, well, yeah, even if that AI, AI, I don't want to say it's alive. I'm not, I'm not ready to give that to the computer industry. Oh, there, it's a living being that's thinking just like me. It's like, I don't want to give that to those guys, but it is definitely an agent. Yeah. A side of it, which strikes me and is to do with the idea, which is common amongst people around that is of intervention from a higher world. Let's go to the, the extreme, you know. The influence, you know, on me has been, you know, uh, the Gurdjieff tradition was transmitted through Bennett and so on, and his tremendous efforts to make uh, realistic and comprehensible the notion of intervention into human affairs from another level, a higher level. And I, you see this virus, it has one character which is uh, resonant with that, that is to say, well, until 20th century, so to speak, we, didn't know they existed at all. It's completely invisible to us. And even the time of, um, you know, the early diseases and plagues and so on, even those, the bacteria were, were not known, were not visible. Then the bacteria became known. The virus is now becoming known. And we hardly know what they are. And we were talking about some of these things. So it's something really intervening from a realm which is like a previously unknown realm altogether. It's like an alien invasion and all these things from our science fiction and from our spirituality are saying. And that leads me to suggest I was uh, thinking in these terms of, okay, let's take seriously a kind of Gaia idea that there is uh, something we call agency, and I can extend it to intelligence on, on of the Earth, and it might include this capacity for throwing up new things which are completely outside of our frame of reference. And what are they doing? What is being done? It's like setting up 
a teaching machine, turning the earth into a teaching machine. It's the 2001, it's, we, do, we don't have a monolith, we have a virus. But it's, it's like the sense you get, it's something like, it's trying to like, very patiently, or perhaps very impatiently now, trying to say, look, you guys, can't you understand what the situation, what reality is like, you know, and trying to help us. And uh, mend our ways and teach us, and it, but it has exactly the, the form of some what was be thought of earlier, some kind of angelic higher spiritual intelligence finding a way of operating on the planet to wake us up. So I'd be curious how you might hold that premise stereoscopically with this other premise that I heard. Uh, the astrologer formerly known as Adam Ellen Boss. Uh, I, I think he, calls, he goes by Akutia Bhava Das now. Anyway, in one of his recent videos, he brought up, you know, the word on everyone's tongue right now is pandemic. There's a global invocation of pan going on right now. And that there is, there is something about, you know, he regards the social isolation as sort of homeopathic remedy that is in place to treat the disease, which is our isolation from the systems of nature and of our own bodies and you know, that kind of thing. So I'm curious how y'all might riff on holding those two things in tension. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could talk a little bit about the pan, which is, you know, pandemic and also panic. And I think that that's, you know, the pan is always outside the, the frame, except for a few, you know, crazy Dionysians. And uh, the role of, of death and dismemberment and the dark and feces and madness and rape and all of that, as James Hillman talks about, or sexual excess, sexual violence even, is all clustered into this force that in a way pan is the kind of um one of the gateways into into nature and because when you talk about oh we're separated from nature and blah 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 and i'm like yeah it was sort of but we've also had 50 years of moderns doing at least some moderns doing the best they can to get back in touch with nature through natural food through psychedelics through becoming interested in indigenous life ways uh, communes permaculture. So there's already, there is an idea and a culture in the West that is not just completely cut off, unless you want to say that like, we're all completely screwed as moderns, it's hopeless. The only people who are still real human beings are people living hunter-gatherer lifestyles in some parts of Africa and, and India. And you're like, okay, well, if that's the case, then well, let's just shut up. But if that's not the case, if there's something we can do or be in relationship to nature, then there are these ways that people, you know, a lot of the wines we drink are biodynamic, blah, 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 blah. So we've been kind of doing this for a while. But I think it would be fair to say that if you look at the model of nature that is usually projected or, or kind of not projected, but sort of inhabited in these attempts to recover a connection with nature, they tend to be pretty bucolic. So there's this fundamental problem about the, that the pantheist has, that the nature lover has, is like, do I pretend that nature is not also red in tooth and claw? Do I pretend that the same forces that led to beautiful stream ecologies and, you know, eagles and uh, daffodils didn't also create 
you know, the wasp that uses the caterpillar's body to breed its own young and burst from its stomach and eat it in this like alien way. Well, I either don't look at that or if I do look at that, then I have a kind of affective problem. I'm not really sure what to do with that. Do I secretly celebrate the dark side of nature as, as being a nature worshiper? Do I pretend it's not there? I mean, even something like uh, Midsommar, the movie, you look at this like happy kind of hippie nature commune thing that looks like exactly what we all want, but they have, they have to put the darkness somewhere. You have to put the, the violence somewhere, and that's where you get into the sacrificial logic or the logic of the, you know, we got to kill the king once a year or J- John Barleycorn and the Wicker Man and all that kind of, there's like, we, we need to do something with the violence that's in nature. And so Pan, I think, is an archetypal energy figure, whatever, that is also like a portal into the totality of the situation. So he's more of a non-dual being rather than a kind of mother goddess or a kind of uh, nature spirit or an animal spirit. Pan is like the kind of partly human. We're part of it, but also this totality that we otherwise don't want to admit to. And the interesting thing I think about Pan and why it's, it's, I'm glad you brought it up with pandemic and panic is that the more that you can kind of embrace that totality, the less you are going to be susceptible to panic, which I think is one of the really key sort of affective psycho-spiritual questions right now. Um, and just to riff a bit, and, and I say that very personally, because I was like, okay, man, I've spent a lot of my life thinking about the dark side, thinking about violence and madness and devils and weird magic and crazy rituals and all this kind of stuff. And I've taken a lot of drugs and I've done a lot of meditation. I've I've thought a lot about death and okay, you know, I'm up for it, you know, and I put myself in some extreme circumstances. I'm not like a nature survivor guy. Like I'm not out there with like the survivalist kit, but like I put myself in a lot of extreme situations and I was very disappointed to see the degree to which uh, social anxiety and panic infected my brain for about two days. And I was like, oh, this shit is no joke, man. Because you can be all cool in your own space or in your own little environment, but you get step out on that street and you try to go to that store with all those other people and there's nothing on the shelves, then you're going to be buying toilet paper too, you know, or you're going to freak out too. And so I'm like, wow, okay, so we're all panicking. What is panic? And it's definitely not a good thing. Like that is something we can definitely try to assuage. And one of the reasons I like this thing from the Karmapa is that he was talking about that. And he had two things to say about how to not submit to the panic. It's not about pretending pan is over there on the other side of the hill. Much to the contrary, it's about using this opportunity to recognize the absolute insecurity of change. And to see it, to see it in you, because you are that change. We are those human beings that constructed these systems, or we are these human beings that are vehicles, vectors of viral contagion. And to use this as a teaching opportunity to just see, to just see what's in us, what's in the structure, what's in the system, uh, what change is, that things have changed, that we are in a new world. And that the more you resist that, the more like weighted you are and the more susceptible you are to panic because you think you're not going to die or because you think you can really stave off death or whatever. 
So it seems to me that that this pan death change portal up or move towards that through the situation. That's really cool. Um, I don't even know if I'd be adding anything to it. I'm just kind of like want to emboss that. It's interesting because I think about the trickster a lot. I know you do too, Eric, but as pan, as kind of like how you, how much you're repressing whatever cultural software that allows us to have a stable self and a stable uh, society is, is what we need to get by in some kind of system. But when the system isn't adapted to the actual context, technological, physical, or however you want to define it, and it needs to change and people are resisting it the same way you're repressing your unconscious in any possible way, the more maybe there's an inverse relationship to the, what we typically think of when we think of panic. Because you're talking about like panic in a way is stepping outside to what happens when you cross the threshold into the realization that there is a totality and uh, how, you, how you embrace that. And whether you're ready for that or not might be whether you actually panic. And you can't, the thing is, you have to have some kind of stable system to go by. You know, it doesn't make, it's inefficient for a human being to be in totality. It's also just chaos, right? So you have to have a stable system and the system has to adapt. And then, you know, people are reluctant to adapt. Um, and then you have your tricksters, you have your people willing to go, like, like yourself, willing to get into the dark a bit. But then you realize that whatever you felt like you were comfortable with isn't isn't as dark as it really is <laughs> whatever you thought you were comfortable with like i think Werner herzog I, I don't remember the exact quote but you can imagine him saying it i remember something like it always strikes me as strange when people say that nature is beautiful and roses and this and that because roses have thorns and it is the beast killing the prey you know that sort of thing and i always when, when I go back and watch it now, I'm a little disturbed because I always loved Clockwork Orange because of the just the aesthetic the beauty of the way the movie is done. And I'm a big Beethoven fan. And there's this huge theme in there of, of okay, we're going to you're going to be repelled by the pathological violence of this human being. And the society that wants to have things stable in a certain way is going to repress that. <clears throat> but the guy who's the sociopath loves Beethoven. You know, and there's this thing where you, you realize you have to accept this violent, ultra violent nature, whatever, however you want to define nature. But there's this ultra violence in nature. At least it seems that way if you don't want to accept it in order to actually evolve. And so they use synthesizer music in there, you know, and it's at that time to have a to have a Moog on the soundtrack <laughs> would have been a violent thing to hear for people because they're used to. Oh, it's a, it's an or should be an orchestral score because this is a film and this is the diegetic reality that we're in but they use that soundtrack and they introduce people to that and then they get this character that's a sociopath but who also loves this creative genius and it just gets me thinking about that <laughs> i love it message listen to beta like synthesizers <laughs> i was wanting to e extend this uh, a little bit and introduce again technology in but in this independent influence or agency as I've got, I'm starting from this image, which is uh, hopefully following something Michael said about the stereoscopic thing. I'm not sure I've really got it yet, it, which is to say that imagine uh, a sort of, uh, this is a, a corrective action going on and it's coming. How is it coming about? It, it's such that you know, like in a physical system, if you put a force into the, Always, that's an actual physical law, and this is happening. And what's hap 
how it's taking its verse forms, which are coming, and I'm harping on the theme, from the invisible worlds. And it's, I'm obsessed a bit with realization that this part of nature we're talking about here, and there's a part of it that is, has only recently been visible to us. You know, it's only in the last few hundred years that this world of the microscopic world has become known to us. Before, for example, something like cholera in the Hindu tradition was known as a goddess. And the idea of these tiny little creatures affecting us was unknown. And the startling revelations about, you know, the now common idea of all these trillions of cells in our guts, which are actually affecting our emotions and leading us, our moods. And I thought, well, because I've, I've started from this thought form of the various alternatives to the human self and, I, and technology and artificial intelligence about this, I think I would like to combine into this picture what's been happening because of information technology and its gadgets, which people are suspecting are changing the human mind very, very much, like our children are obsessed with these devices, that this is part of what's going on also. And it's coming from an, in an unexpected way because we've had the attitude that te technology is what we do. We make it up. It's under our control and all the rest of it. But few people are suspecting that it's not in our control at all. It's something independent also. I think it was Mike, uh, I don't know, Eric and Richmond saying about what's the uh, shape of these things, which is not the usual kind of nature we're used to, not the usual kind of agency we're used to. And there's something in this agency which is more primary than anything which is conscious or sensitive or anything like that. It is agency. It is a force. So there is, a, for me, uh, a sense of, opening up to these previously, or being forced to them to previously invisible worlds. So, you know, going back to Eric about nature, you see, as you say about the bucolic, I mean, the romantic, wonderful pictures, the, the brooding landscape and all that kind of thing, the lovely animals. But there's been revealed this total other strata, which is still the majority of people have no appreciation of. You know, they were actually able to live in a, a landscape which is not only rolling streams and beautiful trees and so on, but also these microbes and now the viruses, and it's like an edge of the invisible world producing these, these creatures into us, and it's absolutely incredibly exciting. And uh, what we're doing here is involved, I think, in when you talk about having, I think, something about appreciation, understanding, all that kind of, it's actually create fictions, because this is what people do, create fictions, which are somehow able to form a relationship with these forces, which we have not been used to before, because we hadn't known about them before. I mean, just a few hundred years ago, we didn't know about bacteria, then about viruses, and we didn't know about artificial intelligence at all. So what can come into effect for us is, and I think what Eric was pointing towards was um, an inc a creative invention of, of, of new kinds of story and fictions and, uh, and imagination, because that's all we can do. What do you, can, Tony, can I ask you, because so, I'm with you, that's one of the reasons that we get along, um, I, uh, in terms of the, 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 the intuition and the sense of the feeling that it's better in some ways if you think of... Um, if you think of an ontological reality that we don't understand as having used the word primary, I think 
And that's the thing is I, I try to discipline myself by thinking, well, you know, human beings are always going to project the other side of the unknown, project their idea of themselves on the other side of the unknown. It doesn't matter if uh, it's plague or a battle in the 14th century. And it's like God was on our side because we won. You know, there's a lot of filling in the blanks with just using logical primacy to like support your side, you know, or this, they're doing it now. Like, you know, these, these preachers that are saying, well, uh, or Hurricane Katrina is supposed to happen because these people deserve it. That sort of a thing going on. And yet, yet it is an interesting, <laughs> and it, it feels the more I study about uh, the history of the uh, human experience, the more I still feel a tendency to want to do that type of a thing. Uh, so how do you, how do you justify the idea that it's primary? I mean, I, I, I try to look at it like there's an unknown and it's chaotic and it's beyond, beyond our comprehension. And we do have to come up with these stories and stories are going to be reflections of ourselves because that's how we see the world. Um, and those stories have to change along with the changing environment, but the changing environment is, could be technological. It could be biological. These are all just categories and so in a way, the AI is no different from the virus. Like, you know, you see there's a lot of shows that are out now. Maybe this is something we'll talk about later. But whether it's Star Trek or Altered Carbon or uh, Westworld, there's these shows where human beings are questioning what I think is the question of our, what our topic is in a way of what it means to be human. Like how much of this romantic idea of the self do we hold on to? Is it just a, a is it just a restructuring uh, within a bigger context or is it, or, or are we trying to hold on to something that needs to go forward? And there's a tremendous amount of anxiety with regards to that. And sometimes I feel it when I watch these sci-fi shows, I'm like, Oh wait, it really, is there going to be this inevitability of this life that transcends this? And we're just like McLuhan said, the sex organs for the machines and <clears throat> they're just going to get past us. Um, but it, but then you step back and you say, okay, well, that's just a dialogue of the self adapting to these new contexts. And it's still us writing those stories. And it's still us that are here to talk about it. So in a way, we're kind of just coming up with a bunch of unnecessary stuff. It, you know, it's, it's, it's just uh, the way human beings explore. But my question to you in that context, I kind of rambled a bit, but it's just how do you or do you uh, justify thinking of an ontological alien, non-earthbound intelligence or agency as being primary because you use that word primary absolutely answer the question uh, this is first of all of uh, idea from william burroughs that language was due to a, an alien virus which which infected us and wanted to bring that into it about language uh, as a well in a kind of <laughs> contradictory way i say it, a relative way it, it is very primary in us we come to express ourselves as we're doing now or um, have ideas and so on. We very, there's very little awareness of what the hell is this? There's this wonderful notion from, not a wonderful, very strong notion from, which is in Joyce and also you go from Giambattista Vico that what's intelligent is language, not people. And, and there's a, still a puzzle about how language arose and all these pseudo explanations you get about how language arose. And this is very important because I, I feel, well, if I wanted to say that something is primary in this, is to do with what you're absolutely able to say. You know? And that's, change can only come in that, uh, if we become able to say something in a quite a different way. You can't 
you, you imagine we can take our language as it is and describe things and invent things and, and, and analyze them and so on and to do something new, but we can't because it's that language itself which is conditioning us. So I'm throwing in language as a further adjunct to all of this which has invaded us and look at something which we ordinarily have to just assume is so, but will itself also have to change. So that would be something I would call primary. I don't know if it, it doesn't answer your question about the making this, this very ontological, but there's something puzzling me about language, which is as an agency is itself a formidable, overwhelming force. And this has really essentially got to change. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Eric, I'm seeing an opportunity for you to stump your book here. There's a... Uh, so much there's so much in high weirdness addressing you know the the agency of of information and i you know i'm just i've been interviewing for complexity podcast i've been interviewing uh santa fe institute network epidemiologists and in particular there's this one paper that just got a lot of traction because they were talking about you know there's simple contagions and complex contagions where it's like you have multiple co-infections of the same hosts and that math supports that complex contagions don't necessarily need to be of all the same substrate. There are biological contagions and then there are sort of mimetic uh, contagions that result in changes in behavior that affect the way that people cluster together and form networks and that Basically, they were saying, uh, you know, stuff like coronavirus travels like viral memes because so much of people's behavior in contact networks is because of the beliefs that they're carrying, which make them more or less susceptible to infection by a biological vector. So, I mean, that's that's the sort of mundane way of breaking the envelope on this. But I think there is, you know, the I think it's kind of astounding how literally Burroughs got it right in terms of language being a virus yeah yeah and also and also a vehicle of of panic again to bring bring that back uh i mean you know, just like everyone else i've been watching the news but you know I, again like i, I want to come back to this idea of like how we can treat this situation as a learning opportunity because what else are you going to do a and b the more that we become fascinated with it the more we think that it, it actually reveals what's going on, the cooler our heads are. We're able to sort of balance our, our personal panic with a kind of conceptual engagement or a, an even a larger than concepts, almost a kind of like par- paradigm zone. And so watching the news is very interesting because you get to see like, oh, look, this is what they do when they're not in control. You know, this is what they do when they're freaked out. This is what you, uh, governors do. And, oh, look, this is what these guys are doing or, or politicians or ordinary people or the people down the street or like, so suddenly you get to like see everything with the, not the mask off, but the mask sort of askew or cracks opening up, you know, in the mask. And then some of that, of course, has to do just with language, just the, just the way that we're, we're narrating ourselves, you know, through this process and it does seem to me that that one of the things to get communicate is precisely this encouragement to bring logos, to bring language and clarity 
on the recognition of what is happening, not a solution. Don't no, not a, a new blanket you can wrap yourself in. No, it's too late for the blanket. Just engage what this reveals. And, and, and I mean that on a cosmic level and I mean it on a very pragmatic political level. So for example, this crisis, the panic of it would look very different if our supply chains and if the indeed the entire global infrastructure was not so attuned to this incredibly efficient, just-in-time, kind of temporally spe- uh, sensitive behavior, so that one little drop out here produces these incredibly significant collective influences very quickly. You know, just simply put, we're not sitting on huge warehouses of masks and ventilators. No, because nothing really works like that anymore. It used to work like that more. You know, it's not like this is always the way it's been. And it's been doing that because it's been more finely and finely tuned to a certain kind of efficiency logic, which is makes more money and makes the whole thing more fragile. So now we're actually able to see the fragility of the system that the climate change people have been telling us about and that we have seen in previous events, but it's much more visible, at least if you're trying to pay attention to it. That is, at least if that's part of your languaging of the meaning, if there is a meaning or the meaning we're making of it, of this kind of event, rather than just the story of protection and safety and fear, and you may die, and what are we going to do? So that's partly what this, I think, a lot of the conversations that are happening. I I just talk to people all the time. I'm mostly talking to people I know individually. I haven't done a lot of, in fact, this is really the first um, kind of public thing that I've done. For some reason, I haven't felt even though I'm a public speaker until now to really start talking about this stuff. But I, I do think that it's really key to, again, encourage the way that language or logos or concept or curiosity, interest, fascination even, can come into the situation as an adjunct, as, a, you know, as, as another figure, another balancing of our more personal anxieties and fears and the the kind of emotional churning that we're that, that we're doing so i didn't really talk about my book um you know i i'm not really sure how how relevant it is except that it's it is in a way by looking at these experiences of high weirdness with these characters in the 70s who are undergoing their own kind of apocalyptic situations that are very unnerving and in some ways quite quite dark and scary uh, that the whole book is kind of a, a kind of manual of navigating weirdness when things are no longer familiar, when there's an element of creepy or just, you know, it's, it's not just happy magic novelty, it's disturbing novelty. And how do you keep your head? And part of it is this weird, like, balancing act where you, it's really important to keep cognition, keep thought, keep analysis, keep the logos functioning as a kind of coolness, even as you move further and further into things that pull the rug out from under your uh, sense of, of reality and, and almost in a weird way to enjoy it. And, and I don't mean enjoy like take perverse pleasure in the drama, like the way I fucking hate, like turning on I don't, I don't watch TV, so I've, I've been mostly reading about this stuff, and occasionally I'll go on YouTube and watch, watch a clip. But I go over to a friend's house, and they got a big TV, and they have the news going all the time, and I just can't believe it. 
that you go on CNN and they have those violins as if you weren't anxious enough already. I mean, it just blows my mind. It's just such it's such horseshit, you know, to just draw people even further into this addictive kind of fear response, fear consumption response, which the media can get you in. And I'm not talking about that, you know, but there is a kind of emotional intelligence that comes to bear at this situation. And I think a lot of it has to do with language that and not just sitting there and just, you know, taking it all in. We got to talk to our friends. We got to use this wonderful media that we have now that suddenly seems so much more powerful and so much more immediate and so much more delightful than it did. I don't really like virtual conferences very much because of the latency, but suddenly I don't really notice the latency anymore. And it seems really intimate and profound. So let's go with that and keep the dialogue going because uh, it's really a, a way to keep coolness and to take as much advantage of the situation to understand what's going on uh, as we can. I don't know. For some reason, when you were talking about it this time, it got me to thinking about the actual kind of the this this sequence of events in this realization, this kind of panic uh, and or realization that people are having and how Trump, he didn't want people to panic, right? He didn't want people to panic because he didn't want the economy to go crazy. And if we're talking about recognizing what the stable cultural form is and what the self is and what the thing is that we're repressing, then if you look at, it's kind of, it seems obvious, but it's also easy to forget because we live in this, financial capitalism is so overwhelming. And when we talk about the climate crisis, you know, we, we think, well, we can't solve these problems because of the system that we're in, because it has this inevitability of its agency of its own. That's not the agency of human beings in an earth, you know, uh, earth domain or an ecology that works for, works for us anyway. And in a way that gets me thinking about that, that's what the, that the economy which I ordinarily think about all the time that way. But when you start focusing on the virus, you forget about this is, that's what's really freaking people out. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a real threat to human life, but I, what I think is happening on the bigger scales, most people are freaking out about the threat to their existence as they know it. Almost like uh, if I can't be a stewardess on a continental flight, then holy shit, what am I going to do? And how are my kids going to eat? That's a real that's a real thing. It doesn't mean that they're going to be, you know, their head's going to be chopped off. But in some sense, because of this idea of the self and their self head is going to be chopped off. You know what I mean? And, and it's just interesting to me to think about the way that Trump reacted and the way the news tried to cover it to some extent. And to this, I mean, I mean, it's still going on, right? I mean, we did, we should have been tested so much more. I don't know anybody. Uh, I don't know anybody that's been tested. Well, one, our friend Doug, like, but myself, I live in the middle of nowhere in Santa Fe. So, and my car broke down right when this started. So I'm, I'm quarantined, but, <laughs> but I, I, you know, it doesn't, I don't need to have a test, but it, it's so crazy that we're not being tested. And in China, so many people were being tested and that's still that denial of, okay, I'm not going to pay my credit card bill yet you know, because I don't have to pay it yet. If we don't, if we don't get tested, then we won't know how many people have it and people won't freak out. And we can, the economy, this thing that we have to hold on to, because that's the way the system works. This economy, this financial, global financial capitalism is not working. It's working for a certain amount of people, certain very particular people, but it's not working for most people. (laughs) It's not a system that works for most people. And so the people that are running the media want 
they want to hold on to that. And then everybody else wants to hold on to their idea themselves that's within that system. But in reality, we do need some kind of, some kind of huge transformation like this. So to that point, I, Mitch, when you and I last spoke at Palenque Norte at Burning Man in 2017, and I was talking about how corporate personhood doesn't go far enough, yeah. you know, that, that we actually, I think it makes sense to sort of acknowledge these entities as agentic, yeah. uh, but that we need to hold them accountable in a way that we don't currently hold them accountable. And it's like a wicked problem of how we even would in the first place. But like I was, I was talking with Melanie Mitchell a little while ago for, again for the SFI podcast, and I was asking her. I was like, "So, don't you think we can apply?" And this is this is sort of a, a bone to you, Tony, uh, connecting this notion of viral agency with artificial intelligence. Because I was like, "Well, don't you think we can look at our capitalist institutions as a form of artificial intelligence that, like virus?" is at the edge of life. And it's something that, uh, like climate change, is you know, as a Timothy Morton hyper object, it's like incredibly difficult for us to see. It's not like we can just get on a microscope and look at it. Like we really, you know, in a way, the, um, you know, global surveillance technology and big data has, is, is forming a kind of macroscope of these ins- that allows us to see these institutions for the first time. And like this is sort of underplayed in our, history of science as it reflects on the the current moment, the last few decades, you know? So I don't know. I just think that in a weird way, if I'm going to give Tony the, the viral angel on this, then it, 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 it does seem as though the virus, uh, like you were speaking to Eric a moment ago in, in its, uh, digestion of these just in time supply chains, that the virus is in a certain way attacking not just human individuals, but human institutions and making them thus visible to us for the first time as something that we've been infected by for our entire lives without realizing. So I don't know where y'all sit on that. So in two things, which might seem relation to what you've been saying, slightly uh, trivial, but first about Pan. And it was, you probably know about the experimental community in Scotland, Findhorn, You've heard about it and so on. Uh-huh. And there was this character in it, Rock, who was an mathematician. He used to have conversations with Pan, and he talked about this. And one of the practical things which Pan advocated was is if you have a garden and so on, preserve a part of it which you let go wild. You know, so, and this also for me is the main marvelous metaphor. Have a part of your garden, you'll sell it, which you just do itself, do its own thing, and then tolerate. So that's one idea as a, as a strategy to have a part of your life which is just left to go wild, ramble and do its own thing. And the other thought came to my mind, and, and I'm not talking about institutions now being attacked in these forms and come back to it, but I, was, I wanted to throw into the conversation one of my favorite books by Brian Aldous. This is going back a bit, maybe holding it before your time. The novel he wrote, Barefoot in the Head, which is set in a Europe which has been bombed by hallucinogens, by LSD. So everybody's out of their mind. And he wrote in such a way to suggest only the ideas of Gurdjieff would make sense in such a, in such a world. So there's a precursor to that. But these, yeah, these institutions and these forms, and you mentioned earlier on, Michael, about the, old, um, the concept of memes and the idea of these forms of thought which do express themselves in institutions and so on. 
you know, are like agencies in their own right. And there seems to be no way in which we can ever correct them because we're always part of them or they're part of us. And we can't, it's like you can't get out of your own shadow, whatever it is. They appear to have this semi-independent existence. And how, how on earth can you break them? I constantly come back to this or very often come back to it. You just do myself as a person thinking, as I'm doing now, trying to think, communicate with you guys. And I think, but what am I using? I mean, what, I'm drawing on stuff. Where does this stuff come from? Whatever I pick up and use, every thought, every word is, is already rich with implications and agency of itself. I use the word, this word has agency. It's just not me using the word. The word had agency. How out how to stop the world, how to do this and so on. And there's, I don't know, you, all of you have uh, been really with your fingers on the pulse of uh, contemporary culture in that respect, which is, and, you know, including Eastern teachings and all the rest of it. You know, what, is there any real concrete scope now for uh, practices which can affect these Call it these primary things, the, the 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 starting points of agency in ourselves, which I'm fixating onto language in this particular moment is the best I can do, because it's that which is there before you even open your mouth. You know, what can affect that? How can it change? Because the story, as far as I've understood it, looking at what I know as spiritual history for the past few hundred years, which isn't all that much, was that this. Um, you know, people meditate and so on. It's hardly any of it has come up with any concrete change in the way people think and or approach things or solve problems and all the rest of it. It's become a kind of indulgence of its own, but there may be a potential there. So I'm throwing that back into it, into the conversation, you know, so what can we bring there for something to affect or influence the agencies we're already subject to, which are our thoughts, our concepts, our descriptions, but also our behaviors in institutions. You want to take that, Mitch? Wow. I mean, <laughs> I, mean it's, it's so I was thinking about when I was working with William Orwin Thompson years ago in uh, grad school uh, on my, my Burning Man thesis, which was a, a study of the cultural version of that wild part of the garden. I, I remember trying to, it's, it's hard in your 20s to, <laughs> to go back through human history and try to make sense of, of major cultural transformations. But I wanted to do that because he could do it, you know? And uh, at one point he, he said to me, um, something the effect of the, it's the explanation systems that change. So if you have a, if you have a shaman that there's lightning and then and a shaman explains to somebody in a tribe that it was this, this deity got really upset um, that was the best explanation system that person had access to. And now we have a scientific system of explanation. So this is talking about language. We have a scientific system of explanation that's part of a bigger institution with certain values. Uh, and yeah, well, I guess part of what's happening is that that scientific system of explanation is now, it's showing its limitations in some ways. And so people like, I assume all of us, are really interested in um, in bringing the poetry and the myth back into our explanation systems without losing some of what we've gained. And I was super into Rudolf Steiner. And, you know, you could take a page out of Rudolf Steiner 
uh, at random and, and if somebody that was educated in our university systems today would just read one page and say, this guy, this guy's crazy. Uh, he's obviously, you know, like <laughs> he's obviously like a total fantastical person. But actually, if you read him carefully, <laughs> he forced the issue of this of this ontology, and he always talked about these forces and agents uh, forces with a sense of agency, Lucifer and Aramon, these mythical beings. But he also did so with a structural clarity uh, that was like a scientific consciousness. And if you read it carefully, you can tell that guy's got a scientific consciousness. And maybe he was forcing the issue so much because it was a primitive initial attempt in some ways to make everybody realize that junction and Heidegger comes along and kind of uh, does a little bit of a better job with the philology and and makes the you know makes the verbs <laughs> makes the verbs move in a different way uh, rather than sounding like this arcane occult philosopher but I I an issue of language and uh, I was talking earlier about these science fiction shows and stuff we're getting used to these concepts that we're not familiar with through the fiction and getting used to those concepts. And, and like Eric changing the word to agency maybe is more important than life. Life is one of these categories. We go back to Aristotle and then we go to this 19th century kind of consciousness of classification and having to put things, having to put things, define things in this very simple way, nature, nurture. And it, we, we know now it doesn't really work that way. And we need a new language. And it sounds superfluous sometimes when you talk about when there are these real, uh, quote-unquote, problems in the world to be like a humanities person and just, and, <laughs> and just go on about how we need a different language. But it's funny because when the real things happen, the language changes. And, and, and maybe the real things could happen in a healthier, more gradual way uh, if we used our imaginations and change change the language a little sooner, which is like McLuhan says the artist is supposed to be doing, what the artist is doing, and what everybody else is catching up to all the time. I did throw into it. I want other people to uh, to, to speak, but it's funny. It's like the the starting point. Where is the the well? Pound called it in one of his translations, the unwobbling pivot, uh, the point of which things would turn. It's your question, what, what is the primary, what's the ontological primary, what really is there which can make a difference, this, this center of the cyclone or whatever it is, what can be primary, like, well, you know, making a start and so on. I feel myself that uh, there is around, and, and I'm doing it here, making a little story, a funny little, bizarre, stupid little story around. There's something around for some time which is about agency, going back to Eric's point, about the nature of agency. I mean, this old picture, and there are things in the world and there are people. People, you know, are supposed to be conscious and do things and have will and so on, and there are things which don't. They're just subject to causality. That kind of ridiculous picture they had of everything. Now we go into this multiplicity of agency, and it's like, Joining in a, uh, joining in the, I don't want to, when I'm waving my hands, you know, music, poetry, whatever, is something incredible going on, which we can participate in, and it's that, and but it's not by you can't stop everything and say now I make a new beginning and turn around. No, it's the show is always going on, but this 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 fluid capacity is somehow entering into the show that's going on which makes a difference. And maybe one of us would, would come up and say something, and just by saying something, the world would change. 
magic. <laughs> so, so to that point, there is something that I really wanted to touch on that uh, we, we got very close to a few minutes ago about to the degree that we frame this moment as an opportunity. I've been hearing a lot of people talk that way. I even sort of suggested, um, I felt compelled to give a rant last week on the show, which I've never really done just like a solo monologue on future fossils. But last week it was recommended by a friend and I was like, you know what, I'm going to. And then I took this, I took the opportunity, I made the opportunity to speak about how there's a sense in which, you know, when it's a flat network and everyone's looking at the same place, it's very brittle. It's akin to the just-in-time supply chain issue. It's that we don't have part of the garden wild. Everyone's focused on the same thing. You know, it's a monoculture. Everyone's eating the same corn. If everyone has the same idea of what's going on, then we have a vulnerability and it's brittle. It's, it's not adaptive. It's, it's brittle to surprise in the way that has been very obvious to all of us at this point. And that, you know, when our networks fracture and suddenly we're all in these, you know, we're all stuck making sense of it for ourselves in our smaller communities, that tends to lead to more adaptive, more evolvable, better, smarter, collective intelligence in some respects. But it's at, you know, it's more innovative, but it's at the risk of, you know, like what we're looking at now, you know, all of these people coming up with all these different conspiracy theories and the, you know, the rampant spread of misinformation, even like, you know, just simple, mundane, bad medical information, armchair epidemiologists. And so there's this, I'm curious, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to poke here was the, the sense in which, yes, all of our attention is on one thing right now, but it's also uh, in this sort of fractured way. All of us are making sense of it on our own. And one of the, and like, that's A. Uh, the curious sort of the paradox of that. And then, then B is the fact that so many people are regarding this with a sort of righteous attitude as an opportunity to strike while the moment is ripe, you know, that there's, you know, what are we going to do to really lock in the environmental benefits that have been made obvious by fewer people commuting to work every day? You know, how are we going to take this moment to kill big oil? And, or how are we going to take this moment to, as you were talking about earlier, Eric, the, the, you know, to seize this, to, ent- to uh, villainize someone in a yeah. geopolitical strategy or you know, these kinds of things. And, and I feel like there's a great danger in everyone rushing in to... Impose uh, their value you know, system on the situation. No, I had to say yeah, reaction yeah, that's because, suddenly, sorry, like, yeah. I, I, I remember thinking about, because it's uh, Naomi Klein, it's, it's on Democracy Now!, and I, was, and I was thinking about, of course, I'm thinking about how this is a crisis is an opportunity to think in terms of a global consciousness that will take responsibility for the consequences of the financial system. And then, and she's pointing, you know, reminding us that uh, this is where people that have power consolidate power. And then these person, she's talking about the ideas that are laying around get to jump in. And then when I thought about the other ideas, I'm like, well, that's a bad idea. And then, I, and then, I, then I, it, just, it just clicked in me that like, well, shit, you know, everybody's jumping in with their ideas uh, in a situation that, that in a way there's a kind of equal playing field of uh, if, if you don't think about it consciously in the present moment and you just kind of like have an idea that's laying around uh, and you impose it into this into this crisis, then on some level, I'm not saying they're equivalent, but on some level they're, they're equivalent, the, 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 the super conservative, you know, um, 
rape of the earth and the ideological uh, hippie, you know, like, let's go. Like, my idea is the right one. I didn't have that moment for a second, too. But... Yeah, I mean, just the threat of assuming that we're right in a situation that should be making it yeah, obvious to everyone. That. We have no clue what's going on. No, maybe stop and listen, like Eric's saying. The logo, like, just be, let the concepts try to form themselves a little bit and don't throw your old stuff on it because you just can't understand this unknown at all. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to something, and, I, and I'm asking myself whether I'm I'm uh, afflicted with passivity or, or some kind of pessimism or, or some kind of realism. And and so when I hear what you're what you're talking about, I just I just do what I what I'm describing, which is to to use the reality that people are making their moves ideologically. And I'm sure in the coming weeks we're going to see some major political moves all over the planet. People, you know, because if people are ready for their like disruption scenario, now they have disruption. It's time to play those cards. So we're going to see big stuff go down. Important, not important, noble, shitty, and and like I can't put, like I can't play. You know, it's like I feel it's, it's that's part of even why it's been difficult to uh, make a public statement or whatever. Is that I, I I actually feel that my my own experience of this right now is is very observational. It's very uh, immediately practicing with my own reactions and thoughts and feelings in relationship to this. And in a way that might be an effect of too much meditation, like Tony said, I'm not kidding. I'm like, in a way you meditate and you learn how to like do this thing and you can kind of drop out and, and step back from your thoughts and create this spaciousness. But that doesn't solve the problem of your own agency. What do you do? Are we supposed to do? And at the same time, I'm very, very distrustful of that drive. We got to do something. We got to do something. We got to do something. Because the whole thing is made out of it. The whole delusion is made out of it. The whole West is made out of it. They got to do something. Got to do something. And so for me, there's something about like reality is fundamentally insecure. In some sense, as Mitch was saying, if we peel away of the framework, it's a chaos uh, that produces all these emotions, including panic gets managed in different ways through different kinds of stories. And yet we can have intelligence. We can see things. We can understand causes and conditions. And through that, we can, you know, nurture the best we can, maintain circumstances the best we can. So when you talk about like all these bad information ecologies, on some level, I just don't care. It's not that I wish, I mean, I do wish they were better. It, it horrifies me when I imagine either the ignorance or the, or the, the cruelty of people who are, who are spreading actively unhelpful ideas about health or whatever, or fomenting conspiracy theory, because that's just what they do. And it makes me angry when I think about it. But on the other hand, there's nothing I can really do about it in the way that I'm in, in the jungle. And it's like, oh my God, because we're in this post mass media universe where we really even when we're all looking at the same thing we are not in the same world and i don't see any way other than some kind of mystical we're all part of some great overtone thing to get beyond that in terms of language or institutions or education or media or culture i just don't know so i i'm kind of more like well i'm just going to stick with my people who are like it's basically you know half science and rationalism and an analytic thought and half a willingness to confront the mystery and never to forget the mystery. And it's somewhere between those two and doing it as, with as much heart as possible. 
and to encourage the spread of that kind of thinking and that kind of orienting. Because if I start to pay attention to in a too detailed a way to all the moves that everybody else is making, I just am unable to to serve as a modest pillar in my own immediate community because I just start to get freaked out or blown out. And then my wife's blown out. And then the person across the hall who's having anxiety attacks is blown out. So it's like the, the, the raising of the stakes for me has also meant a kind of disinterestedness, a kind of uh, negative capability. You know, that, that idea that Keats has of being in the midst of confusions and uh, obscurities and the unknown and not to constantly reach for some fact or some meaning or some story to lay down. And I know that most people are going to do that. And I can't, I'm not doing that right now. And I just hope that that sort of spreads as a kind of emotional energy because you can still make decisions in that space. It's just, you're doing it from a different place and not this drive to do because like, it's like you're, we're all going to die. And if we're lucky, I guess you want to say it, we have some space to go, Oh, it's actually happening now. I'm in the shoot. I'm not going back. And then what is the mind that practices with that space? We should be practicing throughout our lives for that moment. So what does that look like? Well, part of it is relinquishment. And part of it is profound acceptance, curiosity, courage in the face of absolute insecurity. Those are the values that we should be looking at. So without being negative, like being, oh, this is the end of the world. We're all just going to die. Well, we are going to die. And part of what freaks everybody out is now you can't avoid that fact. So let's work panic that comes up in relationship to imminent death, because that's only going to make me be able to behave better in my life, for my immediate community, and for the speech acts for which I'm responsible as we start to you know, yell out in this vast cacophony of, of Zoom calls filled with bullshit and lies and, and you know, machinations. So that's sort of where, you know, it's funny because I, I feel like my ability to reach for ideas and speculations is kind of like, eh, it's not so great right now. I'm like, it's, it's a more embodied, effective kind of clarity of what's in front of me um, that seems to be the, what, 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 at least what's coming up for me. Getting everybody into their homes and not leaving is like getting us halfway there, but everybody will just get distracted with entertainment because normally Westerners, if you're doing something, you're escaping from the sitting and looking and just being with the fascination of uh, the phenomena. So maybe, Eric, what you should do is to write write a letter with all those points to the CEO of Netflix to take all the content and make it just (laughs) earth, nature pictures and meditations and all chants. That way, yeah. everybody at home, all the only option they have on Netflix is <laughs> something to figure out. <laughs> That's funny. You know, it's funny. It's funny you, you should talk about that because I've been, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky in that I just got two sort of book projects going. And so I'm in the early fun phase of research and reading, you know, not where I'm actually writing, which sucks. So it's, it's actually well-timed for me. And one of those projects involves uh, Clark Ashton Smith, who's like, you know, a pulp horror writer from the, you know, 20s and 30s. So not exactly the nature imagery and, you know, thing you're talking about. So I've been very much enjoying these stories. But I realized there's kind of an interesting way of approaching this issue of entertainment that I don't see people talking about. On the one hand, there's the kind of like, let's watch the documentary on the pandemic and like, let's like watch the news and, you know, try to like get the reality, you know, get the data 
And then there's, there's kind of escapism, you know, it's like, oh, it's going to, oh, this is a great show and you'll just get wrapped up in it. And, and we need that, you know, you need to be able to like chill out and have the beers, smoke the weed and just like sit and or enjoy the, 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 the beautiful clouds in the sky. And in fact, recognizing the beauty of the nature around you while keeping your head perfectly aware of the terror and death that is abroad this planet at the same time is an excellent practice at the same time. Oh my God, that sunset is so beautiful and so many people are dying in fear all across the globe. Right there, click. And so Part of the trick with entertainment, I think, and I'm using that word rather than literature, well, it's time for us to improve ourselves by reading some literature. Well, I kind of agree with that too, but even if we want entertainment, go for the entertainment that is fucking dark because you're still entertained. You're still in the world, but you're also in the world of where we are. I don't want a feel-good story right now. I don't want people to watch feel-good stories right now. I don't think that's really helpful. But that doesn't mean you don't watch, you know, stuff that has great characters or people you fall in love with or whatever who are facing really difficult things. You know, that's in a way what makes literature valuable is that literature is using all this richness and poetry and imaginative capacity and creative language in order to look at really difficult things and not wrap it up in a neat bow. And so even when people go into entertainment, I still think there's there's a hunch that this is actually going to help inform where I am right now in this particular situation. And this is just a panacea or a drug or a, a la-la land kind of uh, a- adventure. And that's my own take. Other people are going to you know, have their own relationships to media. But I, I think that we can even entertain ourselves and be in the field of the situation. We've got about five minutes left. And I'm, I'm totally, Eric, that was a rousing uh, a pan to not being able to tie a bow on things, but a, a fine bow in and of itself. But I, I, I would love to just like, I'm going to clip myself here and uh, just open it up to the rest of y'all. If you, if you have like uh, parting thoughts on all of this, it's, it's been great. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Michael. Thananks, Michael. That too. I'm good. Seeing some from America is the region. And now this wonderful idea of entertaining myself. I suddenly went into me, entertaining myself. What a wonderful idea. What an extraordinary idea it actually is. I can entertain myself. And this is um, my, my reality by entertaining myself. It's a beautiful thought. So thank you for that. And, uh, well, the, the entertainment comes from the root, the Latin entretenir or something like that, which means to, to hold one's attention. And, it, and I think that, you know, what Eric's talking about is like, look, this thing is happening, like just allow, if, if the Logos is going to work through and find the right concepts for, <laughs> for this thing we don't understand, the attention needs to, as much as it can handle without having a nervous breakdown, be able to kind of let it be. <laughs> and yeah, the entertainment's been distracting us from all the problems for so long, but I always try to do that, find a balance between because you do need a little bit of my, my dad was that way. He would compartmentalize. He would watch television that was like an escape, but then he would cut it off at a certain time and then he would do his thing. And it kind of helped balance everything out. I'm just a plug for altered carbon. I don't know if it's the best show ever made. I might not be as good as like Westworld in certain ways, but it's really dark and it's working along with this crisis for me. <laughs> 
it's 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 sufficiently twisted and weird and and uh it seems to make sense with what's going on now but <laughs> oh, to poke in a little bit about um entertaining oneself and so on an agency i'm sorry to harp on this it's the um i always had this a very strong thought from some of my reading about um, fundamental philosophy and it was all around this kind of phrase of um saying to people well this is what I do. And they think, about well, what's your philosophy? No, no, you just talk about what all I do. And that's really became vital for me. You know, just agency and so on. My understanding of my own agency is the most wonderful thing because it's not excusing it, explaining it, whatever it is. But this thing that you brought up of agency is to me totally thrilling, you know, because you sit here wherever you are, you're in this agency. It's just incredible. It's quite a revelation itself. And you then appreciate it about, um, other people, the the sense in which you can, you know, participate in another person's agency and another thing's agency. I've always had this comic image in myself about um, science and, and life and so on, the living creatures, about the scientist peering down in a microscope and seeing a germ looking at him with a telescope. There's this kind of reciprocity we can find by understanding his agency. So this is a time not simply sitting in contemplation, but actually entering what was actually doing and admitting, finding out what, what, what am I actually doing? I didn't know it before and then discovering it all the time. So thank you for that input. Okay. I just say the one thing T- Tony, you know, um, if, you know, everybody in LA at least knows that if you, if you want to make it in the, the world where the entertainment culture is a religion, then you need a good agent. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your, Patience and kindness. Um, over to Michael to wrap up. Awesome. Thank yeah. You. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone. And and listeners, uh, if if this has kindled anything in you, um, write to us or, or tweet to us because I would love to to know what ripples this conversation has out there and and how you're making sense of these experiences. And uh, we'll leave it there. Awesome, you guys. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks again for listening. Future Fossils is one of many illuminating podcasts available on the MindPod network. I recommend you uh, trip on over there and check them all out. For more episodes, show notes, and extensive copious extras, head over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Subscribe to the show anywhere you go for podcasts. And I'm always happy to hear from you. Future Fossils Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And may your now be deep, wide, and wonderful. Until next time. <laughs>